Stay hungry, stay foolish. There is only one corner of the universe you can be certain of improving, and that's your own self, Aldous Huxley. Today's guest helps some of the most successful people in the world to understand their behavior and improve their performance. She guides you through the professional profiling assessment process in private to help you discover your strengths, understand what really drives you, and learn which environments will help you to excel. Our guest expertly and sensitively coached you through interpreting your results and taking your next steps to fulfill your potential. Our behavior is at the core of what we do. This is your ultimate self-awareness toolkit to help you understand both your own and others' behavior and to positively influence it. Along the way, you may even start to sleep better, think more clearly, and have good moods more often. Her book opens a window into the elite process of psychological profiling and presents a clear path to improving your effectiveness with immediate actions and tangible tips. We welcome author of Defining You, How to Profile Yourself and Unlock Your Full Potential, Fiona Murden. Welcome to the show. Hi, Aidan. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Let's jump straight into it, Fiona. You mentioned how few people are interested in lifelong learning and how important it is, again, to our longevity, but also activating our brain and becoming our true selves. So sometimes I find it very bizarre when people aren't interested in it because on the one hand the people I work with are senior executives or people who are leaders in their field and to get to that point you have to have that interest in lifelong learning and then there are people I mean I use my grandfather who's no longer with us as an example he explored the world from the comfort of his armchair but just by reading and reading and reading and reading and you just mentioned yourself Aidan you know before we started that you read a book every week And I think that lifelong learning and that desire to keep exploring what's around us is, in essence, what helps us to succeed. But it's not just about succeeding. It's about feeling fulfilled. And the more advanced areas of our brain actually need that to feel fulfilled and happy and content. I find, actually, Fiona, learning, the more you know, the more you realize what you don't know. And then you go down a rabbit hole. And I find books, even in your own book, you mention other books in there, and then I get a curious about those, and I chase after those. And it, it's just a never-ending voyage to discover more and more. But in your book, you talk about three steps of curiosity. It'd be great to share those with our audience. So knowing what you don't know is about approaching a situation, accepting your own experience. So again, as we get older, we find comfort in the fact that we have experience. So it's quite, um, it's not necessarily a natural way of thinking on a daily basis. We have to challenge ourselves to be in that space. But it means we're not presuming that we know the answer, but instead we're asking questions with an open mind and really, really considering what the answers are. And in psychological terms, this is known as empathic curiosity. And if it comes to other people, their thoughts and the feelings of other people, The next step is imagining different and competing possibilities. And that's to say you hold more than one possibility in your mind at any given time. And that's really important in the role of being a psychologist or of looking at yourself. Because rather than jumping to a conclusion, for example, if you see someone who doesn't speak up in a meeting, you might think, well, they're not very confident. But possibly they're not very confident. They're shy. 
they don't think it's their place. There's a whole load of different scenarios that could be the reason why that person hasn't spoken up. If it's someone you don't know and you haven't ever spoken to them, you can't make that assumption. Imagining different competing possibilities is saying, what is the answer? What hypotheses am I testing here? And when you're looking at yourself, it's really important to do that because we can jump to a conclusion. We can say a lot of people will say, well, I wasn't very good at maths at school, so I can never do anything with finances. Finances are different in many ways from the maths we learn at school. So is that really the case? And if you can question that, so many doors open, so many possibilities become more apparent. And then the third step is understand that you can learn from other people. And that might sound really obvious because you think, well, of course I can learn from other people. That's why I'm listening to the show. That's why I read books. But it's really thinking you can learn from everyone. So you can learn from your child who's three years old. You can learn from your partner that you've been with for 15 years. You can learn from your parents still. You can learn from your best friend. Everyone has had a different life to you, a different day to you, a different set of experiences to you. So find out what they are. I love the one about it, competing possibilities, imagining different competing possibilities in particular, because what you're doing really is giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. But also, if you think about innovation or strategy work, you don't get crystallized in your own thinking or you don't believe that your own way is the only way. You start looking broad and wide and looking for more than best practices in industries. And it's a much, much more likely way to discover innovation or discover new methods of doing things. Absolutely. And I think the thing is, it's very easy, again, with that example, to get drawn into a way that looks like the best way of doing something before you've considered everything else. And what there is a tendency of senior leaders to do is they may appear to be open to what other people are saying, but they've still got fixed in their own mind where they're going. And the challenge for senior leaders is to say, no, actually, it's hold on to those different possibilities. Keep your mind properly open because something amazing could come of it. Do you find in your own work, so you profile new recruits or new hires for companies for leadership positions and we often see on lots of job specs at the moment, curiosity or endless learning is required, which also helps innovation because companies are struggling. And on all these traits you mentioned of curiosity actually help companies find new directions. But the question I want to ask you is, how do you measure curiosity? So somebody's looking for curious people. They're really measuring that based on their own context. But you as a psychologist, how do you look for curiosity or curiosity traits when you go through someone's life which is what myself and people who do my job do is you might not specifically go in thinking I'm going to look for curiosity but as you pull out the elements of that individual curiosity comes from seeing someone who maybe had three part-time jobs when they're at school because they were interested in how it felt to work in a shop but they also, they had the opportunity for a paper round. And then they did a bit of babysitting as well. Now that in itself, you might think, well, that's not curiosity. But what it's showing is someone who's willing to try different things. It might be someone who has explored the world, literally, or it might be someone who hasn't, but who is incredibly open-minded in the way they talk about other people and situations. This is very different from naive 
or not knowing how to make decisions. It's that it's a nuanced thing there, but it's someone who explores the world with open eyes, someone who questions in a positive, constructive way. And you'll see that coming through the, just the things that people do in their life, the things, the way they talk, what they engage with, even how they're talking to you. Because if someone is talking to you, very much telling you, this is the way it is, that suggests quite a forceful, closed mind. If someone is telling you something with a humble confidence, but they, they've got a readiness to see a different perspective, that shows you a more curious mind. As you say in the book, curiosity helps us navigate uncertainty and talk about an uncertain world that we live in today, a business environment that's totally uncertain, that this is one of the traits that we really, really need today. And it's one of the challenges of the education system in that we teach people how to learn in a rote manner and we don't encourage curiosity. Oftentimes, children are shut down for asking too many questions and questions are actually the essence of curiosity. The education system is always trying to do the best for children, but I think the way it has evolved late in the Western world is very much, as you say, a tell. You learn this, you pass the 11 plus. We have the 11 plus around where I live, which is a test that children do at the age of 10, 11 to say whether they are bright enough academically to go into a grammar school system with the elite, which isn't paid for, or whether they are not. And apart from anything else, it labels children, which also teaches them not to do something a certain way. But they're spoon-fed the information for tests like that. But the same is true across the world, you know, in many Western cultures. It's a difficult one to fix, I think, because I think everyone realises that there are faults. How do you go about fixing an education system? It's a total overhaul, which is needed, but at least the conversation has begun. But even then, you mentioned about somebody as a younger teenager and adolescent might experiment with several different jobs and part-time jobs. But when we look at the workplace then, somebody who moves industries or experiments and decides, you know what, this isn't for me, is often seen as a job hopper. And it's something, are you seeing more and more of this in the world, more and more people's curiosity driving them to leave the industry that they've climbed to the top of the ladder in and realize the ladder's against the wrong wall. I could give an example of someone that I coached who was general counsel in a very prominent organization. I wasn't coaching him for the purposes of him leaving. We were talking about his communication skills as a leader, but inevitably coaching tends to fall upon more than that and you talk about someone's life in general. And he was questioning whether he actually wanted to be in law, which is a big question when you're in general counsel role in an organisation. He now runs a chain of restaurants, uh, which he set up with funding from investors. Uh, he's no longer a lawyer. So you do see this sort of thing. I think I, I, I was having a conversation with someone earlier today where they, they were saying within their organisation, they see a lot of this in the 20-something-year-olds. Um, where they try out different jobs, but that's potentially not so much driven by curiosity. And I'm hypothesizing here, potentially more from the, the fast culture that they've grown up in, where they can quickly chop and change friends on Instagram or uh, platforms that they're talking to, social media platforms, or everything's very quick and instantaneous. So 
I think it's probably driven by that also in the younger generation. As I say, I'm only hypothesizing. I, I would know for sure. And Fiona, you mentioned the story of you, this key part of our self-esteem and our self-management. It would be great to share a little bit about that and what you see as developing that as so important for leaders and for general well-being. Yeah, so we all have what's known in psychology as a personal narrative, which is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And we form that through memories and we project it into the future terms of what we expect to happen or what our hopes and dreams are. What we don't always do is take a proactive approach to exploring it. If we say, for example, been working with some buying directors recently, so people that buy for fashion brands, a very interesting bunch of people. You would say that all of those people from the outside in, you'd say, well, they're creative. You know, you imagine they were brilliant at art at school. But when you actually explore, some of these people say, I didn't realize that I was creative, actually, until I was in my early 20s. And then this happened. And then they've ended up using that creativity as part of their career. If for whatever reason we don't explore ourselves and who we are and we make assumptions based on what has happened in the past, we can miss those opportunities to say, I am creative or actually I can do finance, even though I thought I wasn't good at maths. Also, it's about understanding ourselves, understanding what really makes us thrive. So what are those situations in life where we've gone into what's known as flow, where we've just lost ourselves because we're so taken up with the interest of what we're doing? So for me, one of the things is snowboarding. When I snowboard, I just feel ecstatic. None of my worries, nothing fills my head. But I also get lost in what I do intellectually. So I love psychology. I love what I do, but I love learning more about it. And that'd be different for everyone. And you might say, well, I know I'm good at that, or I know I enjoy that. But trying to not unpick it, but observe and understand it can help you find then where you're going to thrive, where you're going to be happiest, what you're going to most naturally be able to achieve with or in. And I think the distinction is very important. I spoke to some teenagers recently, and this exploration is just that. It's an observation and an exploration of yourself. It's very different from introspection, which is actually not very good for us. Introspection can lead us down a bad road because it can lead to a lot of self-analysis and self-doubt. But it's more of an observation. Yeah, and you talk about our parents' expectations have a huge influence on our career paths and take us often away from our passions, interests, and motivations. And what is critical is parents' best intentions can lead us astray really for the rest of our professional lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been asked to speak at London School of Economics to some of the undergraduates and the master's students. And the reason I've been asked to speak is actually because So many of those students follow what they believe is the expected path. They've gone to LSE. The next step is to be a management consultant or go into financial services. And and that probably partly comes from parental expectation. You know, we funded you through this degree. We now think you should do this. But it will also be the world around them because they're existing within a world that's saying this is the right thing to do. Now, one of these undergraduates who specifically someone talked to me about has an absolute passion 
for fashion, sorry to say it like that, but he's he's just enthralled by it. But it's he's still going down this route of believing that he should be in financial services or what, whatever the expectation is. And he's just one example. It's a shame because obviously parents of these people, they want them to get a good career where they can earn lots of money and they're financially stable. But it's not actually in the best interest of the people at the other end of it always. Yeah, and, and it often leads to real unhappiness. And the big problem is society categorizes people as successful at a stage of life you call emerging adulthood. And it can be lacking in fundamental self-insight is what you say, which has massive negative impacts at a later stage in, in their lives and their careers. Yeah, so, so research more recently has shown that our brain is still developing into our mid-20s. So in effect, making a decision on a career when you're 21, 22 even, is not necessarily making the right decision for life. So let's talk about managing negative experiences or negative emotions, which is a key part of life, really, being able to manage the downside and enjoy the upside. And you talk about more than emotional intelligence, the way you term it is emotional wisdom. It'd be great to share this insight. Well, I call it emotional wisdom or recognition to the people that coined the phrase emotional intelligence, because I think the way we view intelligence, again, as a society is quite a fix entity quite a fixed state but emotional intelligence as it stands is not fixed we can grow in that sense I believe it should be called emotional wisdom so it's this capability to keep growing and exploring the world with curiosity but around the emotional side of life that doesn't mean crying all the time or suddenly getting all touchy-feely the elements of it remain Step one is self-awareness. So it's really understanding ourselves, recognizing our own emotions and understanding how they're affecting our thoughts and behaviors. Then there's self-management, which is once we've understood that, it's understanding how to manage impulsive feelings and behaviors. So for example, a teenage boy might drive his car like a maniac to impress a girl, but you'd hope that a 30-year-old man wouldn't do that, even if they wanted to impress the girl. So it's just, you know, the emotion might still be that I really want to impress this girl. But <laughs> as you mature, you have more self-management. I think of better ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so there's a lot of research actually that shows that that's why there are so many crashes with young men in cars, is that it's the testosterone surges at a very base level. is It is about trying to show off and show how manly they are. Um, so, yes, it's it's funny, but it's true. Um, there, I think I put in my book, actually, there's research about skate park in Australia. Some psychology researchers set up a skate park and then they got skateboarders to do tricks and they had a level, different levels of difficulty with the tricks. And they then got an attractive girl to come along and they didn't tell her that they were doing this. The levels of testosterone that they took, they measured the levels of testosterone and then blood increased. And so did the difficulty and risk, the difficulty of tricks they were carrying out and the risks they were taking. If we go back to um, this, the emotional wisdom, there's that self-awareness, the self-management, and then there's the social awareness, and that's, that includes empathy. So it's, it's being able to understand the emotional needs of others. That doesn't necessarily mean getting caught up in them, but being able to 
recognize them and and respond appropriately and then the final stage is social skills which is the ability to communicate and interact with people forge friendships maintain relationships over time then they're not explicitly in stages but we, we need each of those to build on one another to get us to that state of emotional wisdom if we want to be a wise sage if we want to be like the Dalai Lama then we'll have to work quite considerably on all four of those stages. Speaking of the Dalai Lama, you talk about this technique called emotional surfing, this idea of sitting with negative thought and dealing with it in a moment, almost like in a meditative state. And it's not an easy thing to do. There's a great book for anyone who's interested called The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris, where he talks about this approach in quite a lot of depth but not in a, a way that's difficult to understand. He has some very practical ways of approaching it. Sitting with an emotion, it's like having a radio on in the background and you're actually concentrating on writing something down. You probably don't hear what the radio presenter has said. You know it's on, you know it's there, but you're concentrating on something else. With skill, that's how the most effective way to deal with emotions. I can't say I'm the Dalai Lama and I do it like that. I try. But it's saying, rather than reacting to an emotion, so, oh, I feel really angry, I'm going to shout. Or I feel really angry and I'm going to suppress that feeling. It's saying, I feel really angry. Hmm, interesting. Right. And it's almost like saying, I'll put that over there and I'll come back to it later. It's not suppressing it. It's not pushing it down. It's just leaving it. So emotional surfing then leads to the idea of cognitive reframing. And I find this just a fascinating way to deal with life. And it's something I try and instill in my kids is there's no such thing as failure unless you keep making the same mistake over and over. Failures are a result of trying new things. And I'd love if you shared a little bit about cognitive reframing because changing how you see things absolutely can change your life. Yeah, and again, it's not something that you just go, oh, I'm going to change now. I'm going to cognitively reframe everywhere, I think. But with the knowledge of these techniques, it's very helpful to start applying them to life. Take the example of, I failed my exams. So you could say, I failed my exams because I'm not very bright. Now, the outcome of that is out of your control. Because if you're, we talked about IQ being fixed. If you're saying I'm not very bright and IQ is fixed, well, there's nothing I can do about that. It's out of my control and it, and it has a pretty negative meaning. But what you can do is you can reframe that and you say, I failed my exams because that's the fact. But it was because I didn't work hard enough. Now, suddenly, that has an outcome that's within your control. It's not saying I failed my exams because I'm not very bright, which I can't change. It's saying I failed my exams because I didn't work hard enough. And I can work harder next time. So you're getting a good life lesson from it, and it has a much more positive meaning. So once we cognitively reframe a thought, that's the first step. But then how do we embed that thought? Yeah, it's not so much embedding as learning the technique and continually reapplying it. Sometimes talking out loud to someone else can help, because when we're talking about things in our own head, even if we've reframed them, they become very attached to emotion. And what we're really trying to do here is, is remove the emotion, but also give yourself some power over the outcome of that thought. And so it's practicing that thing. And it's saying it's almost at the end of the day, you could 
different ways of doing it, but at the end of the day, you sit down and think, what's bugging me? What what am I really upset about today? Well, I wasn't great in that meeting. I'm just, I'm surely, I just, I mean, I'm not meant to be promoted to go to the next level. Actually, you know, I could think about that differently. I wasn't great in that meeting. Why wasn't I great in that meeting? I hadn't really prepared, rushed in. I didn't really think before I spoke. Ah, suddenly you have some things you can work on the next day. It's really is just stopping yourself, catching yourself with thoughts that are dragging you down, seeing what those thoughts are, and then restructuring them. And meaning is huge. A great line I pulled out of the book, we aim for success, but it's meaning that delivers. I absolutely love that. But you go then into brain science and you talk about how the human brain that ensures our survival, our reacting brain, as you call it in the book, doesn't know we live in a world that has moved on 50,000 years from the one that evolved to fit. And as a result, we are constantly striving for more and looking for better ways to increase our world or improve it or change it in some way. And that's the ultimate foundation behind our search for meaning. So, for example, we might say, well, I want to have more, which in the state that our brain evolved for would be, I want to have more food which makes sense because you say, right, I'm going to go and forage for more food or I want to have more sex, which makes sense because then you have more offspring or it's striving for more. It, within our current world, it might be striving for more. So the having more that was really helpful for our ancestors because it helped them to survive is translated in our world to things like, I want to have more, I want to have a bigger house, I want to have a better car, I want to have nicer clothes. And then it turns into, so I strive for more, a better job, a bigger position, more influence. I want to be more. I want to be thinner, prettier, younger, cooler, brighter. And, and this more, 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 more is embedded into our natural brain structure, but it's reapplying itself to a world that it wasn't literally designed to fit. And so we have to stop and just think, hang on, do I really want those things? Is it really going to make me feel better? And that's easier said than done. You know, a lot of people will look at their lives and you see celebrities, for example, a lot of celebrities are unhappy. Not all, but a lot, because they've, they've aimed for those things and they're still not getting what they need. And that's because actually what our more advanced area of our brain needs, the one that would have come to the fore when we were at rest in our ancestors' time sitting around the fire, that bit of our brain looks for meaning. And when we find meaning, which isn't just an easy oh, I know what the meaning of my life is. Once we feel that we understand our purpose, it gives us something to ride through the difficult times on, to focus on. It's like a, a guiding light. And purpose is a huge part of what you look for in people or what you want them to achieve. And the book is packed full of great exercises to define yourself. But you talk about this exercise of interviewing our future selves. Can we share that one? The ultimate for me, is David Attenborough. If we're talking about purpose and meaning, David Attenborough has had that throughout his life. He's, he's not necessarily said, by the age of 94, I'm going to be, I will have been interviewed by the President of the United States in the White House. I will have run TV shows that show the impact of plastic on, on the oceans and, and the world around us. But he's always had this passion for communicating to the world and he's had a passion for the natural world. And so I sort of think, well, if you look at David Attenborough being interviewed on something like Graham Norton or a chat show, what, what sort of questions is he answering? 
And if you put yourself in that position, so you say, it depends what you want to do. You might want to do something locally. So you might think about a local radio station or a newspaper locally, or it might be you've got bigger aspirations and you, and you think about how you want to change the world. And you're going to be in the White House answering questions uh, with, the, with the President of the United States. What, what questions would they be asking you and what would your answers be? What are the things that you could say, I've done this passionately in my life. I've made this difference. I've changed these things for the better. What would they be for you? And for one person, it might be seeing my kids fulfill their potential. For another person, it might be saying, seeing gender equality across operating boards within organisations in the FTSE 100 and the Fortune 500. So everyone will have something different. But what is that for you? I love that exercise. And then there's an underpinning important element of this that is the foundation of it, which you talk about is understanding what your values are. How can we interrogate ourselves to understand that? With values, we have to be careful that we're not just taking on board values because they were our parents' values. Because what we tend to do is absorb our parents' values without even questioning or realising that's what we're doing. So I'd say the first thing is, are they really your values? Is that really what you stand for? And then you can look. So if you have a, a lovely big list of words that you can find on the internet or anywhere, nice words like courage, creation, genius, originality, passion, harmony, which are the words that resonate most with you? You write all those out. This is just one way of approaching it. And then you cluster them and you, you refine that as clusters. So you come down to just three or four things. And if you're struggling with it, one of the ways of thinking about it is if someone's really annoyed you, what did they do to annoy you so much? What did they do to make you so angry? So for me, it would be seeing someone bullied. That makes me really angry. And that goes to probably, you know, the fact that I have huge respect for other people. And I think everyone should respect everyone. So it's looking at how your emotions riled. What does that tell you about what you really stand for as a person? I think this is so important, Fiona, and understanding your values and your purpose and your mission, your own personal one, because many people I talk to in my professional work say, oh, well, the company doesn't have a purpose or a mission. And the first thing I go is, but what's yours? Because you need to understand yours first and then align it with the career you choose. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you can't find that perfect match with an organization because no organization is perfectly going to align with where you want to go. But it's finding the one that most closely matches with what you want to do and where you want to go and then finding a role which allows you to fulfill that. And if it really is unrealistic, if you're a senior person in banking and there's no way you can ever leave that role, even if you want to, well, look for outside of work. Look at where you can do the things that you're passionate about and that give you a sense of meaning in the community or in charity or at home. There's, there's always ways to do that, but you first have to realise that that's what you're doing to make it something conscious. Yeah, and you talk about this is really, really important element. And a, a guest on the show before, Cody Royal, mentioned this when he was talking about sports management, that the right leader for the right team depends on the right timing because it can really, really change. And I loved what you said in the book. We cannot perform at our best unless we were in the right place for us at the right time. You list four elements to consider when looking at the person environment fit. 
because the same is true with, with CEOs. So I often profile CEOs and you can have three good candidates for a role. They can all be on paper an absolute perfect fit. But A, is it the right place for them at that time? And B, is it the right place for the organisation, where they're going and what that's going to look like? And then it comes back to being the same for yourself as what is right for me at this time? So, for example, there's one lady I'm coaching at the moment who she's got a good senior role in an organisation that she's been in for some time. On paper, you might be saying, well, she's bright, she's driven. Why isn't she moving to a different company? Because at this point in time, that gives her what she needs with a child care. So it gives her a bit of flexibility. It gives her that um, continuity that she, she wants currently in the security while she's got young children, as well as fulfilling her intellectual needs. If you took her in 10 years' time, I wouldn't expect to see her there because she's already been there, done that, and she'll be ready to explore another role in another company. So it's, it's very much about you, your environment, the person you're working for, and the values of an organization. And you talk about the fit within a team as well, because a thing I'd like to just spend a bit of time on is a toxic organization, because you spend a bit of time on this in the book, identifying oftentimes people are made feel that they're broken or they're the problem or they have no value or they're unemployable elsewhere. It'd be great to shine a little light on that. Yeah, I've seen that so many times and it really quite upsets me because you see people who are unhappy in a role that can be very senior, it can be very junior, and it starts eroding their self-esteem and their self-confidence because they know they're not right there, they know they're not fulfilling their capability there. But they start thinking, it's me, because everyone else around me is fine. And then that undermines the confidence to be able to go somewhere else and look for something else. It can be a toxic environment. It can be the wrong fit environment. All too often, see toxic environments filled with people who have got huge potential, but they've lost the confidence to be able to put their head up and say, actually, I'm going to take that risk of going to a job interview somewhere else. And here you mentioned the mnemonic dreams, the work that was done. And I loved this one. It'd be great to share this. So the dreams was done by Rob Goffey and Gareth Jones. So Rob Goffey's the London Business School. Gareth Jones is as well. But their mnemonic is dreams, which is when you're looking at an organization which has a healthy culture, it's looking for difference. So where is difference nurtured? Where are people, are people allowed to be themselves in that culture? And are they allowed to express their, themselves? There's off radical honesty. So people know what's really going on. So the, the information is being shared. It's a transparent environment. It's not a case of things being kept secret or hidden or spun a certain way. The E is extra value. Extra value is added for employees through personal development. And I think anyone looking for any job should question, even if it's a really small organisation, what's my opportunity for personal development? And for a small organisation, they may not have a budget, but they may be able to say, well, we share books around staff or we give you time off to do something that you're interested in and you want to pursue. Um, It's supporting it in different ways that may not be financial for those smaller organisations. But for big organisations, there should definitely be lots of personal development opportunities. There's A for authenticity. So it's saying that 
that it is what it says on the tip. I've seen organisations which I thought were absolutely brilliant, wonderful, lovely organisations. And I've gone, so you must have seen this yourself, Agent. Now you go inside and you work with them and you think, my goodness, this culture is just, it's just there's something wrong with it. Uh, how can it be such a mismatch with what I'm seeing on the outside? It, it should all feel real. Um, the work is meaningful, so that's M. So the, the, the work in itself has some sense of meaning. You don't just feel like you're... So, for example, a part-time job I had when I was at university was filing for a hospital. So filing in itself, you might think, well, that's pretty dull. But because I was filing patient information, I felt like it had some meaning to it. Simple rules are applied, and their simple rules are applied across the board. So you haven't got, well, we can't do this. Oh, no, there's a huge amount of bureaucracy around making decisions. It's all very simple, clear, um, and easy to understand. And you talk about two types of cultures that I hadn't, hadn't seen before, extreme collectivism. And then extreme individualism. We've got extreme collectivism. It's a culture that encourages people to lose their individuality. So it's almost suppressing the personality. Now, arguably, you could say the Nazi organisation fits that. It's where everyone is expected to behave in the same way, to think almost the same thing. And it becomes that template of a typical employee. And it strips people of their identity. But it also means that they don't have personal growth. They don't have room for development and can lead to really quite horrible feelings of anxiety and frustration, and again, that eroding the self-esteem. And then at the other end, you have cultures of extreme individualism, and that's where people are allowed to express their personality, but so much so that they can start feeling isolated because they're given so much space that they're not relating to other people. They don't necessarily identify with the work they're doing or, or the organisation. And that can also lead to feelings of neglect, and isolation and loneliness. So it's about finding the right balance. I think with all these things, it's about finding the right balance of those two elements, but finding the right balance for you. For example, I'm quite rebellious. So for me, I would have to be towards the individualistic end of the scale to be more comfortable. But I still want to associate with other people. I still want to connect with other people, work with other people. Whereas other people may prefer that feeling of being very much belonging into a team and it's near the collective end of the scale. We don't want to go to either extreme ends of the spectrum. And then people who are stuck there, what's your advice for them? And I know coaching can help, so individual coaching, but also your book can help because once you identify your own purpose and values, you can understand the mismatch. But for those people who feel stuck, what would you say to them? I think it's really realising it's not you. It really isn't. And it's talking to people outside of the organisation. Sometimes that can be hard because they don't quite get it. So people go, oh, that's fine. That happened at my company. And you're like, no, 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 it's, you don't get it. It's worse, worse than I'm explaining it. Um, finding someone who understands. It's regaining your identity. So to keep up your self-esteem, it might be you are reflecting on your purpose and your values and you're using those outside of work uh, in volunteering, in the community, with family and friends, things that will make you still feel like yourself. Within the work environment, find an outlet. So something you can do every day that allows you to relieve your stress. And that could be something like doing a yoga class, go for a run, go for a walk, 
listening to music. Um, and it might be if you're stuck at your desk all day or plug in your headphones for a bit, listen to your favourite tunes, think about being at a concert, but just find some sort of outlet. Learn what you can. So every negative experience is a learning experience. It might be one that you prefer to look back on and say, thank goodness I'm not there now. But but just try and take the learning you can from that situation. Look at that horrid boss and think, I make, I'll make sure I never work for a boss like that again. These are the elements I need to watch out for when I go to a different job. Or I hate this culture because of X, Y, and Z. These are the things I need to look out for. This tells me this about myself. Find positive people to associate with. It's really important. Keep away from people who perpetuate that toxic environment, people who moan, who gossip, who are supporting that environment is almost like saying it's the right way of operating. Build your support network outside of work and then try some of the things around cognitive reframing. But finally, and the most important potentially, is plan your exit. So if you feel like you're not getting anything from your role, it looks like things aren't going to improve. Think about how you're going to get out of there. Spend your spare time writing your CV, talking to people in other organisations, putting your, so your feelers out as to what might be available, what opportunities, um, and really sort of spend that time in the evenings when you're feeling sorry for yourself or rather than sitting with a glass of wine or maybe sit with a glass of wine and do it but think through how am I going to get out of this and take practical steps to do that and Fiona for people who want to get in touch with you and find out about more about you as a leadership coach or a keynote speaker where can they find you so my website is simply my name which is www.fionamurden m-u-r-d-e-n I'm not sure if you can understand that with my cold dot com that's probably the best way to get in contact the book is available on Amazon. Fantastic. Author of Defining You, How to Profile Yourself and Unlock Your Full Potential, Fiona Murden. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Aidan.